Welcome to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. And now your hosts, Tim Cole and Jeff Lewis. Welcome, everyone. I am Jeff Lewis. And I'm Tim Kowal. Both Jeff and I are certified appellate specialists, and as uncertified podcast co-hosts, we try to bring our audience of trial attorneys and appellate attorneys some news and perspectives they can use in their practice. As always, we appreciate your referrals to other attorneys that you know if you find this podcast useful. Yeah, and if you find it not useful, send it to your opposing counsel. Uh, before we jump into this week's discussion, we want to thank Case Text for supporting our podcast. Case Text is a legal technology company that's developed AI-backed tools to help lawyers practice more efficiently since 2013. Case Text is relied on by 10,000 firms nationwide, from solo practitioners to AmLaw 200 firms and in-house legal departments. In March 2023, Case Text launched CoCounsel, the world's first AI legal assistant. CoCounsel produces results lawyers can rely on for professional use, all while maintaining security and privacy. And listeners of our podcast enjoy a special discount on Case Text's basic research at casetext.com slash calp. That's casetext.com slash C-A-L-P. Well, Jeff, you know, we've been doing this podcast for over three years, over 100 episodes, and we've amassed a number of tips, both from reading the discussing appellate cases and from our many illustrious guests on appellate oral argument. And we thought that we would try to distill some of the best tips and the recurring tips that we hear for this, uh, for a single podcast episode. And uh, joining us today, you you brought a guest uh, in your studio, Jeff. Uh, introduce That's us. That's right. That's right. To, to keep it real, to keep us honest and make sure it's practical, I invited my new superstar associate, Kyla Dayton. Hi, everyone. I was ordered to be here today, but nevertheless, I'm so happy to be with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, involuntary oral... and yet happy to be here. Yeah, Kyle's got an oral argument coming up in LA in a couple of weeks, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to brush up on some uh, some tips. That's right. We're gonna yeah, we're gonna uh, stuff your head with a whole bunch of tips. Hopefully, you'll you'll forget them all, and it'll, it'll all become natural to you by the time you show up at oral argument. But Jeff, uh, so so here to start us off, just with some kind of top uh, top level, high level observations about oral arguments. Some of the the questions that I get most frequently from my clients, Jeff, are they're on bookends of the oral argument question. It's either, look, we've got all these uh, additional great arguments and evidence. Can we talk about them at oral argument? Uh, And I have to say, no, the oral argument's very narrow. You can't talk about anything new or useful that uh, was not discussed in your opening brief. And then the corollary other bookend question is, well, then what good is oral argument? Can we just skip it and I don't have to pay you to prepare for it and, and go to it? And then I have to say, no, 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 nonetheless, oral argument is extremely important and you don't want to waive it. So I'm always uh, on any given day, Jeff, I'm either telling uh, a client that it's really, really narrow and there's hardly anything new you can talk about during oral ar- argument. And yet it's also really, really important and you never want to waive it. And w- what do you say, by the way, there's a third question I get asked, should I go? Meaning I, the client, should I come to oral argument? What do you say to clients who want to come to oral argument? I tell them you uh, you you may come. You have a right to be there, but there is literally no reason for you to be there. You can watch it online. You, usually, you're going to get a cold bench anyway, so you're just going to be listening to wow. me telling you the same thing that I'm telling you now. Interesting. Oh, I, I take a little different take. I tell the client, if I were the client, if I were paying this money for an appeal, I would absolutely go. That said, I give this speech to every client, and 99% of the time, clients skip it. They usually skip. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, mine always skip it, but so we give them different advice and yet the result is the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
All right. Well, here's a, another bit of another uh, kind of top level advice that that I've remembered from one of our guests, Myron Moskovitz, who uh, he's been doing uh, oral argument on appeal for a long, long time. And uh, and his big tip is prepare for your oral argument early in the case. Uh, when you're doing your opening brief, you should have the, the, the theme for your oral argument already in mind. Uh, it wow. shouldn't be just something, you know, sprung uh, out of your head uh, at the last minute, you know, on the night before oral argument. It'd be sh- it should be something that ties your whole appeal and uh, all your arguments together. I have to say, probably by the time of the reply brief, I have a pretty good idea after seeing the respondent's brief, what the key issues are and where there's play and where there's gray area. I can't say that at the opening brief, I am entirely focused on oral argument. How about you, Tim? Well, I'm not focused on oral argument, but I think at least when I'm writing my conclusion, you know, I always like to write in my conclusion. I, I try to kind of, kind of like lay a marker for myself. And here's what I think the key themes and issues are for the uh, for the case. And I'm going to lay that down in the conclusion of my opening brief. And you know, if I'm right, then it's going to be the same. It's it's going to tie together into my introduction and conclusion in my reply brief, and then also into oral argument. But okay. sometimes, as you say. The, the respondent's brief will take a different tack and you, you'll have to adapt accordingly. You just never know. All right. Before we get into like specific tips, Tim, uh, I wanted to ask Kyla, uh, you're getting ready for oral argument next week. Do you have any specific fears or concerns or questions leading up to the big day? Yeah, of course. I think forefront in terms of fears is being asked a question and not knowing the answer. How do you respond to that? Yeah. And with the caveat that neither Tim nor Jeff will be sitting right next to her to whisper in her ear. <laughs> yeah, you don't know the answer. I think a big uh, a big one is: Are you the appellant or the respondent, or right. in federal court, the appellee? Yeah, uh, in this particular one, she's the respondent. Do you have a stock answer for uh, or 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 a, a tactic for when you're asked a question that you <laughs> have no idea how to answer? If I'm the respondent and I don't know the answer, I feel a little freer saying, uh, your, "Your Honor, I I confess I don't know the answer to that question." But if uh, the panel likes, I'd be happy to submit a uh, a letter brief, you know, uh, when I get back to the office uh, before the court takes this matter under submission. Yeah, that's a good one. Or if it's important or material to the court's decision, I'd be happy to offer a supplemental brief on that issue. I haven't considered it before. Uh, I haven't considered it before today. That's a good one. Yeah, particularly uh, if it is a if it's a question that's a little bit out of left field and it's not squarely in the issues that have been presented in the briefs. Uh, I think the court might be a little more receptive to allow you that leeway to do a supplemental brief, because otherwise, if the court rules, uh, you know, bases its opinion on some new issue that's not been addressed, then it leaves itself open for a petition for rehearing, which they hate getting. Uh, So maybe they'd prefer to get a supplemental brief rather than a petition for rehearing. Yeah. What if it's uh, the kind of situation where it's squarely within the pleadings and either you're having a senior moment because you're old like me or you're having an associate moment because Kyla, uh, you know, has been assigned the case by a senior lawyer and doesn't know the uh, the record as well as possible. What do you do if you're asked a question you don't know the answer to, and it's well within the four corners of the issues already briefed? Well, that's tough, but I, I think you do have to be honest with the court. I think probably a natural reaction would be to 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 try to segue into something that you do know the answer to, uh, answer a question that you uh, that you wish the panel had asked instead, and I think yeah. the panel would hate that. So I think you do want to be forthcoming with the panel and say, Your Honor, I'm sorry, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Then you know, you know, offer to uh, to provide the answer another way. Yeah, um, yeah. I think uh, this has happened to me once before in an appellate argument. I think the the where I was asked a direct question, I didn't know the answer, and it wasn't some new issue. And I think what I said at the moment in a moment of panic was, uh, 
your honors, I think I'll rest on the briefing. I think the briefing is adequate on that point, uh, rather than admit in open court that I didn't know the answer to the question. Yeah. Well, I think you could save some face that way. I, I don't know that the panel would like it. If, if the panel thought that your answer in the briefing was adequate, it probably wouldn't be asking the question at oral argument, unless it was trying to throw you a softball. Maybe that's yeah. another thing to try to intuit from the question. If the panel is offering you a softball, then to take it and run with it the best way you can. But if the, can if, if the panel is asking you a pointed question uh, where it is trying to think its way through uh, the issues or your arguments. I don't think you want to uh, to punt. You think you have to be uh, you have to answer them squarely. Right. Yeah. 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 All right. Like, so listen, before we get to the specifics of the day of what happens at oral argument, do you want to share with the audience uh, or I can what specific things you do in the weeks or days leading up to oral argument? Well, to, to answer that question squarely, Jeff, uh, what do I do? Uh, I, I reread the briefs. Uh, typically, I will, uh, when I read, if I'm the appellant, then when I get the respondent or appellee's brief, I make some initial note. My, I, I, give them, I put my hot takes, uh, put them in my own file. And then uh, usually when I go back and reread uh, the briefs, I like to read my hot take first because I figure oh. if these are the questions that first come to my mind when I read the other side's brief, that uh, there's a good chance that the panel is going to have the same reactions. And so I want to make sure that wh whatever I, however I addressed those, those points that I thought, well, this is a pretty valid point that they raised. How did I respond to it? And then I try to decide, did I give a, an adequate response to that? Am I satisfied with my own answer? And uh, it, if, if any way I think it's inadequate, I try to come up with an, another couple of ways that I might try to explain it to the panel at oral argument. So oh. I think that's the best, your best clue is uh that's, that's one of the benefits of appellate briefing taking so damn long is that by the time you get the other side's brief, you've probably forgotten all about your case. And so when yeah. you're reading their brief, it's like, oh, that's, that's pretty good. So you want to be able to explain why, no, it's garbage. Right. Okay. All right. I, you know, for me, when I, when I get ready for oral argument, I try to at least three or two weeks beforehand, uh, I'll use a, a software similar to case text or case text itself for um, running through all the briefs to make sure that all the laws are still good and that all the cases that we've cited are still good. Because that way I want to give myself plenty of breathing room to tell the court about any new authorities, because we can't tell the court of appeal any bring up any new authorities that aren't in the briefs. And by the way, so if you get your opponent doing that before you speak, it's always uh, good to uh, remind the court, oh, that's not a case that was cited in the briefs. I would welcome the opportunity to offer a supplemental brief on that issue. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's a couple of weeks ahead. And then, you know, maybe a week ahead, I like to draft a summary of the key cases and the key factual, the key facts with record citations. And then a couple of days ahead, I like to distill that, reduce that to a couple pages and contemplate the hardest questions I could get. What is the question that keeps me uh, up at night that I'm worried about getting? And then when I'm about 24 hours away from argument, I like to finalize at least what my opening remarks are, what I can say before uh, I'll get cut off by questions. And then having everything else kind of in segments under a heading of, you know, by issue. So I'm ready to, to pivot to questions if need be. So that's my process. Yeah. And uh, and along those lines, Jeff, let me let me offer a couple other perspectives on how to prepare for oral argument. In, pre in preparation for this episode, Jeff, we uh, posted on LinkedIn that we were going to be recording this episode on the subject of oral arguments and how to prepare for oral argument and how to effectively give oral argument. And we got several excellent responses. And on, on the subject of how to prepare, here is a comment from Glenn Dennis. Uh, he says, make four outlines. He said, many, many years ago, I read Carter Phillips' uh, suggested plan for oral argument. 
and uh, and Glenn has stuck with it ever since. And that plan is make four short outlines while preparing. The first is a long argument outline. The second is key statutes and rules. Third is key cases. And four, the fourth outline is likely questions that you're going to get from the panel. And then work through the outlines as you prep, shortening the argument outline as you go until on the morning of the argument, you have it down to a nice single page. Yeah. You know, uh, let me ask you this. As part of that process, have you used ChatGBT since we had that one interview with that one guest about using ChatGBT for argument? Uh, about asking ChatGPT to please anticipate the questions the panel is going to ask me about this case? Yeah. I haven't, have yeah. you? Yeah. You, I, I have as an exercise. I can't say I've actually done it for a particular case, but after that episode, uh, after that interview, I went into ChatGBT and I said, hey, I represent such and such person in a slap case. And I, uh, these are the issues. Would you please conduct a uh, oral argument? I am the respondent. And uh, then what follows is a question and answer uh, with ChatGBT. Now, ChatGBT is not up to date in terms of its database. It's not a legal database, but it does raise interesting questions that kind of get your juices flowing, your brain in terms of what other good questions could be asked by the appellate justices. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's uh, it's a poor man's way of mooting your case. If you can't afford uh, to, to find three other attorneys and pay them their hourly rate to sit through and ask you, listen to your case, read all your briefs, and then ask you questions that you might get from the panel. And, and, and ChatGPT may be a good way to go. And one other wrinkle, you know, ChatGPT just recently, by the way, ChatGPT is not a sponsor of our program, but they should be. Uh, they just added a a uh, verbal component where you can speak to your phone. It'll hear you kind of like a, hey, Siri kind of a thing and it will verbally respond. So instead of typing in all this stuff and reading it, you can, with your cell phone, have a moot court argument with your cell phone using ChatGPT. It's fantastic. Okay, that's something to try out. Uh, Attorney John Nielsen also mentioned uh, uh, to make a cheat sheet when you're preparing for oral argument. Yeah. Uh, and in his outline, he puts the record sites and case and statutory support for each point. That way, if the panel ever asks you, where is that in the record? Or what is the authority that supports your argument, counsel? Uh, you have that at the ready, just in case you don't have them memorized. Let me ask you this in terms of having it at the ready. When you go to an uh, oral argument in person, do you have one page? Do you have index cards? Do you have an iPad? What is your go-to thing that you have in your hands when you go uh, up to the podium in or in in-person argument? When I go to the podium, I have an outline that's uh, that's usually, you know, I try to keep that to a page or sometimes it's two pages and I try I try not to not to use it or re uh, refer to it. I try to have it mostly memorized, not because I, I want to read from it as a script because that's that's highly frowned upon. Yes. We talked with uh, with one of our guests about uh, who, who mentioned that there was a Supreme Court case. This was Adam Unikowski who related the story when the Supreme Court stopped an advocate in the middle of oral argument and said, counsel, are you reading this? <laughs> as, uh, as though to underscore, the, the, the court has solicited a, a number of your briefs, has read a lot, of, uh, a lot of pages of your legal writing. They don't need to hear you recite uh, your, uh, your, what you've written. They, yeah. they can read it just fine. They want to hear how you present the case extemporaneously, not reading from a script. Yeah. I, I guess the only thing that worse than reading from the script would be actually reading from the briefs. That would be, and <laughs> Kyla and I just exchanged meaningful looks suggesting that she's not going to do any reading during her upcoming argument. I would never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's another, one of the fine lines you have to walk in oral argument is you want to be you want to be very prepared. You want to know your case cold, but you don't want to sound canned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you want to sound prepared. You don't want to sound like you're winging it. 
So yeah, well, that, yeah, one. that's that's the difference. <laughs> to be prepared without being canned. Yeah, I gotta say, uh, you know, we've had a few guests on our uh, podcast that talk about going up to the podium without any crutches, without any props, no uh, index cards, nothing. I can't imagine not having a crutch. So I always at the least have my iPad with searchable PDFs and all that. Or if I don't have it together enough to uh, prepare something on my iPad, I'll have a physical notebook with one page at the top with the summaries of the key points I want to make. And then in the back of that, maybe some annotated brief pages with uh, the good stuff. Okay. Okay. Good ideas for what to have. So so you're an iPad person. I I bring a binder with me. I don't bring it to council table, but I bring the binder just in case there is something that I'm thinking of as I'm waiting for my case to be called and I need to frantically, you know, look at one of the other documents to to remind me what it says in there. But I feel uh, sometimes uh, that it can be a liability when you bring your entire case with you. It tends well, to make you nervous that you need to be, you know, uh, nose deep in that binder uh, until your case is called and then you, you tend to freak yourself out. Well, yeah, look, in the old days, you could tell the difference between the trial lawyers and the appellate lawyers in that courthouse when uh, you showed up with a binder and trial counsel would show up like with an associate and six boxes and then contain <laughs> the entire trial record. And they bring that up to counsel table. Uh, like, really, you're going to go through that? Uh, I guess now with iPads, it doesn't happen too often. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Hey, let me ask you this in terms of video setup, because there's still courts such as in LA that does do video arguments. What is your setup for how you like your screen or what stuff do you have on the screen or available to you for video argument? What I have uh, on my screen by way of like a, a virtual background, is that what you're asking? Oh, no, no, no. I imagine you have an amazing background. I was talking about like, do you have your notes up on the screen or physical notes? Do you have like the record up? What do you, uh, what do you have? Oh, to oh like on my other monitors? Yeah. Yeah. I will just, uh, I typically just have the, uh, the briefs and the, uh, well, the appendix and the record. Yeah. In case I need to search those. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I tend to, uh, have, uh, the PDFs of the, uh, of the record and the briefs. I have my notes printed out because I'm always worried about a computer failure, uh, or some glitch. Uh, and then I, I try to position my notes on the screen relative to the camera. So when I'm reading my notes, not reading to the panel, but I'm reading my notes, uh, it appears as though I'm intensely looking at the camera and paying attention and making eye contact with the justices. Yeah. No, I think that is important to try to to try to make that eye contact and yeah, p- position your screen uh, or p- position your notes, whatever you're going to be referencing while you're giving oral argument. If you're going to be referencing a document, yeah, have it uh, just under the the eye of the camera, so it looks like you're looking at the camera and not somewhere else. Can I ask you a dumb question, uh, Tim, for for oral argument or even for this podcast? Do you have a camera that like rests on the top of your monitor, or is it flexible and moves around? How do you have your camera? Yeah, I have something on an arm that I position, you know, just over the top third of my monitor. Got it. Yeah, I like. I gotta tell you, uh, I kind of like putting the camera out of sight and out and and covered when I'm not uh, doing video stuff. So I like those arms. I, I don't understand the people who have it just sitting there staring at them like how two thousand from two thousand one makes me nervous. Oh, where you could so you you turn it away from you during the day. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, All right. Let's do, uh, let's uh, dig a little more into the uh, the crowdsourcing you did for our oral argument tips. What uh, what do you have next? Yeah. Here's the the next one I have under the heading of anticipating the panel's questions. That's that's the big thing, right? When you go in there, you you've got an outline, you've got some prepared remarks that you're going to present that you'll just run through start to finish. In the event you get a cold bench and no one asks you a damn thing, and you're just you're up there uh, talking and throwing it in front of three uh, three statues. But if you do wind up in front of a hot bench and they're asking you a lot of questions, you want to have 
have in mind what kind of questions they're going to be asking. That's the worst thing when they ask you, when uh, the panelists ask you a question and you thought, wow, I never, never thought of it that way. I never th- thought of that question. So you, you don't want to be in that, in that position. Yeah. Uh, so here's a tip from um, Lindsay Lawton, former guest of the podcast, Florida appellate attorney, former career clerk in the Florida Supreme Court's in the Florida Supreme Court, she says, uh, listen to the questions being asked of the other side. So, so listen when the when your opponent is giving oral argument and uh, and they're getting peppered with questions. Anticipate that you might be getting kind of the, the other side of the coin questions. Uh, so be prepared for that. And uh, if you're the appellant, prepare your rebuttal. Don't think you can easily respond to the arguments that the appellee made in the moment. Predict the best arguments they'll make and have a written rebuttal and adjust it if necessary and as you're able. But it's good to go to go into a rebuttal with at least some idea what you're going to say, just that it's good to go into your main argument that way. So what do you think about that, Jeff? Having having kind of a rebuttal plan, uh, having in mind not only what the panel might, might ask, but what your opponent is going to say and how you are going to uh, dash it to pieces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be prepared to dash it to pieces, Kyla. Always. <laughs> Let me say this. I don't like to be ready to simply be ready to answer a question that was asked of the appellant. If I'm the respondent and I hear a question that was asked of the appellant and I think they flubbed it, they dodged it, or it's just a helpful topic for me, I will, without asking or uh, waiting to be asked by the justice, I'll say, your honors, love to answer the question that justice so-and-so just asked my opponent. In response to that question, I would say, blah, blah, blah. And don't wait for the justice to ask you that. That's what I would do. Um, Because I don't like giving my opponent the final word on anything. And when you're the respondent, it's really tough. So that's generally my strategy is to listen for questions that are not answered well, be ready to respond. And if it's something that shows your appeal strength, affirmatively offer the answer to the question before being asked. Yeah, I like that. And then what, what about, Jeff, when you are the respondent or the appellee? and the appellant has just finished their argument and you take the podium, do you start right in with your you know, with your outline, with your prepared remarks uh, right from the get-go? Or do you, if, if there were some interesting points that were raised by the other side, or especially if there were there was a colloquy between your opponent and the panel, do you lead in you know, to, to try to just pick up where they left off to, jo- to join that conversation? Well, look, if I'm the respondent and I feel like things are going poorly, or I feel like the other side scored points with response to certain questions, I will abandon my prepared remarks and jump into uh, directly into those uh, either questions or subject matters w- without a doubt. Um, so it depends on on if, if the other side has put points on the board, then you're going to yeah. change your plan. But let me ask you, uh, I was just talking to Kyla before we started recording about the flip side of that. Suppose you're the respondent. And it's a cold, cold bench. And no questions have been asked about the appellant. The appellant went up there clutching their outline, uh, said a bunch of things, and the panel says, next. And the respondent steps up. Sometimes I'll introduce myself and I'll say, if it's gone poorly, unless the panel has any specific questions, I'm prepared to rest on our briefing and thereby deprive the appellant of any argument, any opportunity to argue a reply and salvage a terrible argument. What do you think about that? Yeah, and and particularly if uh, if the appellant has reserved time for rebuttal, yes, is that a good strategy? Because then they've uh, and now they've wasted their token. Right? They can't. Uh... Yeah, every once in a while you get a savvy, either a very savvy or a completely unsavvy appellant's counsel who will reserve their zingers for rebuttal. And if you don't have argument, you know the courts won't let you have two bites at the apple. If the respondent says, "I'm good," 
Yeah, I, I do like the, that uh, strategy as the uh, respondent just getting up and saying, Your Honor, unless the panel has any further questions, prepared to, to submit on the record. But Sometimes you have to be... I will have a very truncated outline if I had yeah. just one or two points that I want to make in that event. And maybe just, or if there are issues that I think, I wonder if the panel might have any questions about this. So I'll just raise it so I can ask any, uh, answer any questions yeah. that the panel might have, but otherwise uh, get up there and, and sit down as quickly as possible. I think that's the name of the game if you're the appellee or respondent and yeah. the other side hasn't put any points on the board. Okay. Uh, but I got to tell you, you got to be supremely confident in your briefing to do that. Okay. <laughs> or in reading the justices, if you see the appellant just getting shot to pieces, which happens sometimes. Yeah, but it's easier to do. Uh, it's easier to justify that approach when you're the respondent or the appellee because you've already uh, carried your burden of persuasion below, right? Uh, you don't. Uh, yeah. You don't have the burden of persuasion on on the appeal. It's the yeah. appellant who needs to be prepared to tell their story or tell their argument a few different ways in case it didn't go over the first time in the briefing. Yeah. Well, I'll never forget. I had one appeal. It's crazy appeal where. Opposing counsel came in at the last minute. He didn't do any of the briefing. He just came in for oral argument. He was the appellant. I was the respondent. He comes in. He had reserved 30 minutes for oral argument. He comes in. He comes up to the podium. He says, your honors, I'd like to reserve all 30 minutes for rebuttal. Whoa. And I step up to the podium and I say, I've got nothing to say. <laughs> they almost, They almost cut him off, but the panel took pity on him and asked him if he wanted to reconsider his time allocation. <laughs> Don't do that. I won't. I, okay. <laughs> that, yeah, that was uh, that was almost the Hall of Fame oral argument, Jeff. Tim, Tim let me ask you this. Uh, getting back to pr- uh, preparing for uh, oral argument, you know, in, in in LA and I think also in Orange County, you get to reserve anywhere between zero and thirty minutes for oral argument. What do you put on that form usually for oral argument? I don't think I've ever had a case where I reserve more than fifteen minutes. Sometimes uh, I have reserved as 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 little as five minutes, and wow. uh, and sometimes I do seven minutes uh, or 10 minutes. If it's a fairly narrow case, you know, where I've only uh, addressed really one issue and I've, uh, you know, briefed the hell out of it. And I kind of think there, there's only so much more I can give to this case before I make the the justice's eyes glaze over. And I take to heart uh, what uh, Justice Bedsworth has, has, has said about uh, the attrition that the justices face when sitting through argument after argument after yeah. argument. And they're making, the counsel's making the same arguments over and over again. And you know, so I try to take pity on them. And if I don't have anything really new to say, then then I will keep my my remarks fairly brisk. Yeah. Or, or I think it's Justice Bedsworth who quoted Justice uh, Rylerstan saying, when someone requested 30 minutes, my God, was your briefing that bad? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. What? I got to tell you, I'm impatient. As I get older, I get really cranky and impatient. I don't like sitting through a whole calendar. And I find that most people put 10 minutes down at the least. So I always reserve nine minutes because, you know, the Court of Appeal always does the shorter yeah. arguments first. If it's a case where I feel like I really want to understand how the panel is, whether it's a hot bench or a cold bench, I might ask for more time. So I'm a little later, but generally my go-to move is nine minutes. Nine minutes. The price is right rules. Yeah. Or <laughs> I guess after this podcast, when everybody knows my trick, it'll move to eight minutes. Yeah. 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 It's like, uh, you know, what's better than seven minute abs, six minute abs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Last question. I'll let you get back to your outline here in a second. But last question, Tim, when you go to in-person argument and you have the option of lowering or raising the uh, physical podium, do you do that as a flex to your opponent or do you leave it as is? Do I do it as what to my opponent? To You know, as a flex to your opponent, you know, to raise it really high, you know, so they have to raise it low or you know, mess <laughs> 
Yeah, psychological warfare. Do you do that or just leave it be? Oh, see, uh, see, I, I must, I, I'm so much more guileless than you, Jeff. I never, never even occurred to me to do that as a, a psychological warfare, but, but now you put it into my head and I have to think about doing it. No, I'm, I, I'm almost six foot one. So yeah, yep. so I, I do usually raise it up a bit, but because I, I'm not relying on it and I don't want to show the, the justices the top of my head the whole time. Uh, so I don't <laughs> think it, think of it as a big deal to, uh, to leave it down. Plus, plus, my eyesight's not that great, so I need to, you know, if it's too close to my eyes, I can't read it. All right. Next time, suge- I suggest you use your height to your advantage. Raise it, you know, maybe a little more than you have to. And then when you sit down, your opponent has to spend a lot of time lowering it to their height. Trust me. <laughs> okay. Is this something that you think about? That this is part of your so your uh, your oral argument strategy workup. I have to tell you, after we've had so many appellate justices on the podcast and attending MCLEs that say oral argument just simply doesn't matter. Uh, these are the things that I do to amuse myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to get some enjoyment out of it. But remember uh, when we had Justice Thompson on the podcast, yeah. and I think I had just uh, uh, just a, f- a few episodes before that related the advice given by Justice Bedsworth in one of his comments or one uh, a plea given in his column that it would be nice if there were more counsel who submitted and waived oral argument. And I thought, well, m- maybe I should do that if it really doesn't change things. But then Justice Thompson said, you know what? Uh, we we kind of think lesser of you if yeah. you waive oral argument. You totally. must not really believe in your case. I thought, well, okay, yeah. then I guess I'm not waiving any more oral arguments. Yeah, for sure. Okay. A next tip, prepare to explain how new cases or arguments are not waived. This comes up if you if you if you're the appellant and you've thought of, you know, some some great additional argument that you put into your reply brief or you think of a new argument that you want to raise an oral argument. Be very careful that the that's when you're going to draw a question from the panel. Counsel, did you uh, where is this in your opening brief? Oh, well, uh, it's not really there, your honor. I just thought of it uh of the other day. Happen. Well, how yeah. can we possibly consider it if it hasn't been raised in the opening brief? So be prepared. If you've got anything that hints that it's new, that hasn't been discussed in the opening brief, be prepared to explain how, no, 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 really, this is just another way of looking at the argument that I put in my opening brief. Yeah. Look at foot, footnote 52, my appellant's reply brief, where I fully developed this argument. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but in all seriousness, Kylo, when you're the respondent and you're worried that appellant may raise a new argument at oral argument, it's good to at least know the major headings in the opening brief and the reply brief. And if you hear something during oral argument that strikes you as new, that wasn't raised below, and it's not in one of those headings, you can drop into oral argument. I don't remember that argument being raised in the briefs Okay. and, and see if you throw that bone to the uh, panel and see what they do with it. Maybe yeah. a rebuttal. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe that can go back to your original question, Jeff. What if the panel asks you a question that you know, don't know the answer to? You'd say, well, uh, your honor, uh, the appellant didn't raise that argument. So I didn't right. feel incumbent up upon me to address it. I could, that, I couldn't that works if you respondent that they would have raised this issue. <laughs> All right. Okay, next tip. This was uh, this is one of my favorite tips that we got from our uh, our second interview with MC Sangaila. Tell the court how it can decide the case in the narrowest way possible. And uh, MC's tip here was uh, was her observation that advocates usually are looking for an outcome, but appellate judges are looking to write an opinion. So we go in there, Jeff, as uh, as uh, and Kyla as the attorneys, and we just want to vanquish our opponent. 
well, you're a counselor. How should I rule? Well, for me, we, we win, they lose. What what could be simpler? But they they need to uh, uh, to come to an outcome that's consistent with the law and that jibes with other authorities. And if there are other cases out there that have holdings that that might kind of conflict a little bit, they need to be able to to draft their holding in the narrowest way possible. So find a way that you get what you want and you get you get what your client needs in the narrowest way possible. You know, you know, we want to come out of there with published author- uh, published opinions in addition to a, uh, a win. But sometimes the published opinions or the big sweeping holdings are, you know, contrary to uh, to our interest because it is it makes the justices uncomfortable. And that you want to make the justices comfortable with yeah. your arguments and what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then related to that, you know, tell the court what remedies are available. If it's not just a simple case of, uh, of of money, if there's some equitable relief involved, or if it's a you know, more complicated uh, type of case where is it going to go back for a new trial? Do we just issue, do you want us to enter the relief uh, right in the opinion? What do we do? Sometimes these, these cases are complicated. The procedural history is a little bit of a quagmire and the court needs some guidance about how do we get this thing done? You know, that's the that's the court's prime directive in uh, in all these things is how do we get this case over and removed from our dockets? They want to know the cleanest way to do that. Yeah. Or, you know, it's not just reversal or affirm. There's all sorts of middle ground. So in terms of remand with directions, et cetera. So educating the court, if there's something besides uh, the black and white of reversal or uh, affirming, it's good to educate the court and give them options. Yeah. Okay. another uh, another one of my favorite. Uh, appellate uh, and, and oral argument tips from one of our former guests, uh, Justice Lambden, uh, said, uh, don't make too many arguments. And you should, if you have weak arguments, be prepared to concede them because doing that will get you credibility with the panel. And the panel will always notice if you are just, as Justice Lambden put it, running the loop again and just going through your prepared narrative over and over again. That's why, again, the, the justices don't want you to reread your briefs. They don't want uh, pre-planned remarks. They want to know, you know your authentic take, uh, take on the case. And so if they, if they take the time to ask you questions, it's because they want uh, an extemporaneous answer and not a soundbite. And Justice Lambden also said, we always notice, he recalled this his, from his time on the Court of Appeal, we always notice when an attorney told the court which argument to focus on. And uh, he said, you'll show courage if you acknowledge a certain argument is not your strongest and you'll earn credibility when you pivot to the argument that is your strongest. Right, right. So yeah, like in the context of an anti-slap case, there's no no shame in saying, well, maybe that prong one argument isn't our strongest, but let's talk about prong two. Okay. Yeah. Here was another tip from Justice Thompson. And, and this is to respond to that catch-22 that we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, Jeff, uh, that, that oral argument. You know, the, the catch-22 that, that Justice Thompson uh, recognizes is uh, if the argument wasn't in your briefing, then it needed to be in your brief. You can't raise it at oral argument. And if the argument was in your brief, then why are you just repeating yourself? Uh, so that's that's the trick of oral argument is uh, is being prepared uh, without being canned, without repeating yourself. So he says you want to be you want to come prepared at oral argument with a fresh spin on the case, not new arguments, but a new way of looking at the arguments or a new way of looking at the whole case. Or or look, if, if you're really uh, hard pressed to come up with something new, I always like to come up with the why at oral argument, the public policy argument. You know, every appeal is the same. There was a trial error and it caused prejudice, right? But then there's the why. Why should the court of appeal get so excited that they take out the red pen and, you know, sign in reverse? Um, 
And so it's a great opportunity to introduce public policy arguments. If this rule were the rule across the board, blah, blah, blah would happen. Or this is why the legislature did blah, blah, blah. Uh, to talk about you know, kind of real world, world uh, applications of what the court is doing in this quiet little uh, dark room. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I think that's right. I think another way of doing it is if if in your briefing you focused on the law, then uh, then maybe uh, emphasize the facts and why why the facts uh, under the facts of the case the outcome you're looking for makes sense. If you and if you didn't uh, if you worked on the on the equity, show how the law also supports it or the facts. You know, just uh, put it a little bit of a different emphasis than uh, than what you did in the briefing, just to make it look like a different presentation than than you've already covered in your briefs. Yeah. And if you're a young associate who's going to argue a case that was briefed by another lawyer, it's very easy to give a fresh take as the briefs weren't yours. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to do it. Yeah. Ask uh, ask an associate, ask a colleague uh, to you know maybe take a look at your briefs or if they're uh, generous with, with their time or if they're uh, like Kyla. You know, uh, has to do it. It's in, uh, involuntary because her boss told uh, told her to do it. Then you can you can get a fresh look at the case. Okay, a couple other tips. Uh, this one from Robert Scavone, uh, appellate attorney in uh, in Florida. Tell the court why you win. Give direct answers to questions. We talked about that. Uh, don't fight hypotheticals. So if the judge uh, gives you a hypothetical, don't tell the court those are not the facts of this case. The court knows those aren't the facts of this case. The court's trying to think through uh, the the more abstract legal problem. Uh, Robert Scavone continues: Have a poker face while at counsel's table. So don't you know? Don't don't make you know nasty faces or roll your uh, eyes. Yeah, you know, don't roll your eyes, right. Kyla. <laughs> yeah. We're both very expressive people. <laughs> and don't go up to the podium with a binder. You bring that Come big on. binder, leave it at counsel table. Just take up your one page outline if you need it. Uh, if if you need your crutch. I'm going to veto that. I'm going to say, if you don't have a, a an iPad, there's nothing wrong with uh, coming a skinny, at least a skinny binder. You don't need uh, 10 volumes of the trial record, but yeah, at least a, something. Okay. Uh, next one, uh, Chris Shandival, who was on our podcast as well, says, here's uh, the big one for me. When you get a question from the bench, start by answering the question as directly as possible. Then and only then explain your answer. There's too many attorneys who try to flip this order of operations, especially when they get tough questions and they try to pivot and give a, a long conditional response uh, that only ends up frustrating the panel. Yeah. If there's anybody uh, more cranky and impatient at oral argument than me, it's the appellate justices who have to sit through a long calendar. They want to hear yes or no, but, and then you move on and make your point. Yeah. Another tip uh, offered by Brian Ginsburg says, uh, here's here's one thing to come prepared with at oral argument. Pre- be prepared to answer the question, what is your rule? So if you're coming up with a like a statutory interpretation type of argument, or you have to uh, have to reconcile different lines of case case authority, be prepared to answer the panel's question. What is your rule for how we decide this case, how we interpret this statute? Uh, Brian Ginsburg puts it, uh, particularly in cases involving disputed issues of statutory or constitutional, regulatory, regulatory, or even contractual interpretation, be prepared to succinctly answer the inevitable what is your rule question. Unless the text is so clear that all you need to do is repeat it verbatim, you should have an articulation of your reading at the ready. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. That's a good tip. Yeah. Uh, along the same lines, John Zakur uh, says, be prepared to answer what is your best case? One uh, one question I've seen many attorneys fumble, have a good answer if asked, what is your best case or which case is best for your side? 
I think that's a great preparation question. Uh, what is the best case? What is the worst case? Uh, what's your opponent's best case and worst case? But I got to tell you, I've never been asked anything remotely close to that in oral argument, but I think it's a good tool for preparing. Next one, uh, two more. Stuart Milch, his advice is basically just be a friend of the court. Be a help to the court. Uh, Stuart Milch says, it's kind of like the book about learning everything you really need to know in kindergarten. I think what trips many people up are the simple things. Introduce yourself, be polite, look at the judge who asked you the question, don't interrupt or speak over a judge. And if you're out of time and a judge asks a question, ask the presiding judge for permission to answer. And they'll, they'll always let you, but it shows deference and respect. And uh, I think the corollary to that is that, uh, you know, just be a friend of the court. You are there to be a help to the court, not to allow you to grandstand, not so that you can have another billing opportunity for your client. You are there so that the judge can help puzzle through the issues that you've presented in your appeal. Let me ask you, Tim, on the subject of introducing yourself. May it please the court or no, may it please the court? And just Tim Cole for the uh, appellant. I just did. Uh, yeah, I just say Tim Cole for the for the appellant or respondent. I've given up on that formality. It, it never uh, felt comfortable on me. What about you? You still do it? Yeah, I I I, I do do it in in certain cases. I can't say uh, I, I'm aware of the Lewis rule, uh, a principled uh, distinction for when I use it, and when I don't. But sometimes I just the moment comes to me. Kyla, you have full discretion to either use or omit that phrase. You will definitely using it. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, okay. Last one from uh, Jay Johnson. And I, I, I put this under the heading, explain it to me as if I'm hearing several other cases today. Um, so he, uh, Jay has heard this from a fourth circuit judge. Remember that even though you've spent vast amount of time preparing your case, uh, your case is just one of four or sometimes more that the judge is hearing that day uh, and one of 16 that week. So while the judges will know the facts and the law, you should be prepared for high level questions that may seem elementary to you. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Let me offer one other point we didn't get to. Uh, and that is, you know, as a respondent, I hate not having the last word. And as a respondent, you know, you've submitted a respondent's brief and then the appellant gets the last word uh, with their appellant's reply brief. I view oral argument as a respondent as an opportunity to present a oral sir reply brief to the appellant's reply brief. So if there are any zingers that the other side put in the reply brief, I'd love to respond to those because otherwise, the Court of Appeals left with the reply brief as the last word, and I can't stand that. Yeah, yeah, great tip, great tip. Yeah, you as the appellee or the respondent use the oral argument as your sir reply. Okay. Right. Any other brilliant nuggets, Jeff? You know, I had a question here, but I don't have an answer. Uh, do you have any big uh, war stories or um, nightmare stories of best or worst experiences in the Court of Appeal you want to share? Oh no, I I I don't recall that I have anything uh, that was very dramatic. I've I've seen counsel, you know, I've seen uh, I've seen respondents' counsel try to reserve time for rebuttal, being reminded that no, you don't get the last word. The appellant gets the last word. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, raising arguments. I, I have been asked by uh, by the panel. The tip that I raised earlier came from experience about being prepared to tie in any new or novel arguments into an argument that you've already made in your brief. And because uh, because that's that's come up with me at least uh, at least once, uh, maybe a couple of times where the where the judge I, and I thought it was uh, it was it was pretty organically related to the issues in the case. But uh, but I, and I was I was uh, uh, discomfited by the panel's question because it made me realize that they're looking to just uh, boot this one on a procedural on that procedural yeah. rule that, oh, it wasn't squarely raised in the brief. So I'm so we're not even considering it. <laughs> 
I, you know, I have one interesting story. It only comes up once in a blue moon. And that is, you know, uh, when watching soccer, you know, World Cup, when there's an interruption in the proceedings, there's, there's uh, overage or whatever they got, extra time. They add two or three minutes to the clock, right? There's no such thing in the court of appeal, in my experience, as extra time. So I had an argument where it was a super important case. And the other side was up presenting their argument. And there was a fire alarm in the building, downtown LA. And we had to evacuate. And we go back an hour later, the building was not on fire. Argument resumed, no extra time for stoppage. Huh. I was shocked. I was, if I was the respondent, I would have been ticked off that I didn't, wasn't given an extra time to reorient the justices and all that. So uh, note to self, if your argument's ever interrupted for uh, any reason, you're not going to probably get uh, extra time. That is very surprising. Okay. Well, good to know. All right. well, I, and I want to know, uh, uh, Kyla. Uh, do you have any burning questions? What are what's uh, what are the things that uh, now after having sat through and listened to us talk about all these different oral argument tips, are there any that surprised you, or are there any uh, any things that are especially concerning you about what uh, what to be expecting at oral argument? Yeah. So um, in making the four outlines, focusing on key statutes for one of the outlines and key cases for the other, would you recommend going through the headings of I guess your own brief and outlining each of the key statutes and cases for your own briefing or for both sides of briefing to be prepared to speak on those? Yeah, I would say both sides, especially if the other side raised any um, any good authorities that cause you problems. Yeah, I would say, though, omit from your notes any discussion about the standard of review, unless both sides have disagreed over the standard of review, and omit from your notes anything about appealability in terms of timeliness of appeal or whether it's an appealable order, unless there's some dispute between the parties. But other than that, I think that's a good approach. Okay, great. Yeah. By the way, Tim, for the record, she took a full page of notes. So she was paying attention. Oh, I'll be. That's, uh, that's, I, I think that's uh, the most anyone's ever paid attention to our podcast. Uh, you know, and as a guest of the podcast, uh, Kyla will be receiving her uh, official uh, California Appellate Law podcast mug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that wraps up this episode. We want to thank Case Text for sponsoring our podcast. Each week, we include links to the cases we discuss here from Case Text's daily updated database of case law, statutes, regulations, codes, and more. Listeners of the podcast enjoy a special discount on Case Text's basic research at casetext.com slash kelp. That's casetext.com slash C-A-L-P. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, such as guests that we should bring on the podcast or topics we should discuss, please email us at info at calpodcast.com. And uh, in the future, continue looking for more episodes on how to lay the groundwork for appeal and preparing for trial. <laughs> yep. See you next time. See you next time. You have just listened to the California Appellate Podcast, a discussion of timely trial tips and the latest cases and news coming from the California Court of Appeal and the California Supreme Court. For more information about the cases discussed in today's episode, our hosts, and other episodes, visit the California Appellate Law Podcast website at calpodcast.com. That's calpodcast.com. Thanks to Jonathan Caro for our intro music. Thank you for listening, and please join us again 